I'm sweating and I'm wet with muck. And I went out to bring some mats to David, who's scrubbing and hosing down the mats in the very gross alleyway. And he was completely soaked. (laughs) He looks at me and he says, this is a long way from executive committee. (laughs) And there we were just in ankle deep, dirty mat water and we were exhausted, maybe a little bit miserable, and just together we were able to laugh it off. And, you know, in retrospect, those were the good days, as hard as they were. Hey, folks, I'm Connor Gunn, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation a podcast where we're talking to the innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are committed to building successful businesses that also help us build a better world. Food is a major theme in our conversations. It's not just that food is an essential part of existence for every human on Earth, and so an abundant and sustainable food system is a major key to a better future. It's also that food brings people together, creates connections, and dare I say, fosters consensus. After all, there's very little that we can all agree on more than an incredible meal. So, while we've heard a lot about regenerative agriculture and the incredible work being done by farmers and ranchers at the head of the chain to produce food more sustainably, it's also important and fun to spend time talking to the folks doing the good work at the other end of the process, the chefs and restaurateurs working hard to make those nutritious ingredients both accessible and delicious for customers. I love talking to chefs about their stories, and I'm tremendously inspired by those who are pursuing the idea that sustainable, healthy, and high-quality meals should be available to everyone which is why I'm really excited to have Eric Oberholzer join me on the show this week as the guest. Eric is a chef, entrepreneur, author, and food thought leader who has devoted himself to the mission of democratizing fine dining and championing food as wellness. His culinary journey has put him in the kitchen with some of the biggest names in the industry, like Bradley Ogden, Alice Waters, and Michael Mina, on his way to co-founding his own hugely successful concept, Tender Greens, a genuine game-changer for the world of affordable, casual fine dining and, no joke, one of my most patronized restaurants of all time. Since stepping back from the day-to-day at Tender Greens, Eric has dedicated his time to advising other founders working to build sustainable and purpose-driven food brands or restaurants. He's also a passionate advocate for food security, soil health, and biodiversity through his work with organizations like the Rodale Institute. I'm a longtime fan of Eric's work and a huge believer in the way he thinks about food, so it's a real treat getting to chat with him on the show today. Let's jump into the conversation. Growing up, as you think back on your upbringing from where you are now, can you point to any kind of impactful moments or experiences that shape your relationship with food or with kind of the journey that you ended up taking? Yeah. So Italian mother, very talented Pennsylvania German uh, grandmother. So I was always in the kitchen, whether it was tasting the sauce or checking the rigatoni with my mom or helping with uh, a pie crust with my grandmother, who who is a very, very good regional cook. That's awesome. I feel like so many of us have those formative moments in the kitchen growing up. Not many parlay that into such a successful career in the industry, but I think we all kind of, a lot of folks share that common nexus of, of growing up around the kitchen with loved ones. What about the way you think about kind of sustainability and the relationship between food and the earth and, and society? Was any kind of seeds of that growing up? Well, you know, I, I grew up in a in a small college town surrounded by 
cornfields and uh, further out mountains and woods. And I was always more curious about nature than than anything else. And I think over time, the connection between food systems, where it comes from, and how it relates to both the uh, the tools in the shed to to help us navigate, you know, this world. Uh, but more importantly, the the negative impact food has had on the environment. I've become more deeply involved and, and passionate about the influence of food on on environment. So you end up, like you said, going to school in Philly. What were you studying then? Psychology. Any relationship between that and, and your ultimate profession for a while? You know, restaurants, hospitality, it's a it's a people business. So whether it's customers, it's the team, macro or micro behaviors, I mean it all loops back to to psychology. So I you know, whether it's my management style or my own sort of maintenance and understanding of people behavior, I think psychology has probably been more valuable to to my career and my life than culinary school was. So then how did you get into culinary school? What was the the path that kind of took you there? I graduated in 1990, tail end of the, you know, the go-go 80s, Wall Street had collapsed and the world seemed somewhat uncertain. And you know, the options for somebody graduating with a degree in psychology were you know, go to New York and get into sales, go to graduate school, or go to law school. I have no interest in uh, legal scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> I had really been working towards a PhD program, but found it somewhat isolating that you're you're doing work for an audience of 10. And I was working at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia while I was going through school and getting closer and closer to to that level of hospitality and the food and beverage that goes along with it and just fascinated. So my my passion growing up for food and connection to food and relationship with food married with, you know, the high level of hospitality and, and food and beverage that I was exposed to just grabbed onto me. And, uh, you know, I, I felt that in an uncertain world, people would always need to eat so I could navigate the planet through food. When you were in school, what was it about that job working at the Four Seasons that captured you? Was it the first place you, you applied? Was it something that you actively sought out? Well, number one, I had some friends who were at the hotel and they were they were making a lot of money. So that that was a motivator. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then two, the you know, the culture of the Four Seasons. This is back when I think there were 14 hotels. It was a growing Canadian-based luxury brand that was really the best, you know, it was Ritz-Carlton and, and uh, the Four Seasons back then. And it just elevated everybody's game. You know, whether you were a kid out of North Philly or a kid out of Kutztown, Pennsylvania, the level of luxury, the the clientele, the this mindset of anticipating the, the needs of guests and, and surprising and delighting, it became a game and it became a passion. So I really started out on the on the front side with you know hospitality, partly because of the economics of it. You just make more money on the front, but was always curious about what was happening with the chefs in the kitchen. And when it came time to really lean in into the business full on, it was a no-brainer for me to to really pursue culinary. So when you applied to and, and went to culinary school, what what did your Grandma and mom think the the chefs in your life growing up were they excited? 
my family has always been supportive. Just whatever you do, do it great and finish it. My friends, particularly my friends in college, thought I was insane. You know, it wasn't <laughs> it, it wasn't trendy back then. You know, there was no Food Network. Yeah. You know, the first wave of American chefs like Alice Waters and people like this were were just catching attention. And I was following along, but it, it just it just wasn't mainstream. So it, it seemed a little unconventional to go from an academic path to to something like culinary. Yeah. It sounds like and feels like this is the era that maybe was captured kind of in the first generation of of food stories, chef stories, restaurant stories that have become kind of very popular television, film, books. And from I think many of us, we have this perception of a very intense environment. So I'm curious what it was like that first job coming out of culinary school. What were you doing? Was it kind of what we all picture the early days of LeBernadette and Anthony Bourdain writing about Leal? Like, was that what it was like to enter the kitchen world in that era? Yeah, I I started my serious cooking career the summer after my first year of culinary school at the Chatham Bars Inn and on Cape Cod. And it was all European with an American chef who had worked in New York for many, many years, would expedite in French and mostly at the top of his lungs, yelling <laughs> and screaming. And, you know, those were the days where chefs were doing drugs in the kitchen. They were they were drinking during service. And, you know, some people get happier and others. The opposite. <laughs> the opposite. And, <laughs> Uh, I, I worked in, in some of those kitchens that were just really intense and, and it was just insane, but it was also, it was good training, uh, around discipline, which I had already, but, uh, kitchen discipline, but more importantly, I, I think the real takeaway for me in those early days was not so much the, the technical skills. It was examples of how not to lead. You know, under my breath, I would always say, you know, this is not how I'm going to lead a kitchen when 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 it comes time to lead. And, you know, I think as a result, I was part of that second generation of American chefs who saw the the madness of of the first generation. And some of those folks have, have been exposed publicly. But, you know, whether it was addiction, whether it was legal problems, whether it was just lots of talent, you know, with really bad business practices and fundamentals i really looked at at showing up uh you know more consciously and more calm and i think i've i've managed to do that uh, through my career to create a a place of of discipline but also calm yeah i had a similar kind of experience in uh, 10 years in banking just repeatedly thinking to myself, this is an example of what I will never be or don't want to be. And there's value in that. I mean, it's still, still a good learning experience. Yeah. And you can still perform without you know, being the wolf of Wall Street or whatever. You know? Yeah. When you look at kind of what the modern celebrity chef has become or the modern kind of food media has become. I just finished um, Your Table is Ready, super fun book for anyone who's interested in, who loves chef stories, which I do. It's pretty pervasive, right? The amount of cooking competition shows and they're everywhere. As you kind of look at that with your experience, what do you think about it? And or what do you think the average American media consumer should know about the real world? Well, you know, entertainment is entertainment first, right? So, you know, you think of Gordon Ramsay, for example, I had friends who who worked for him back in the day, you know, when he was just 
cooking. And he's a maniac. He was one of those guys who people would vomit before service out of anxiety because they knew they were going to get yelled at. So his his persona is is sort of real. It's exaggerated for television, but yeah, that's sort of who he is. And I I think the the risk is that it I don't know if it sensationalizes the business or even romanticizes to some degree. I don't think we should be celebrating this behavior. I watched the first season of The Bear mostly because people were like, you have you, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I had moments of like PTSD. Yeah. I worry that young cooks will watch these folks and think it's okay. In the same way that when I was coming up, you know, there were there were those of us who said we can do this better and more thoughtfully. And others who said, this is the way to succeed and get results. And I'm going to be a maniac. And it's okay if I do lines of Coke before service and sleep with the hostess. And that's just this business, right? You know, and then there's the Anthony Bourdain's of the world who probably had elements of that as well, right? He was a heroin addict for a while. And, but he, because of his poetic approach to the business and his honesty, I think he's, He's like the Lou Reed of of American restaurant culture. So there's there's a difference between the authentic version and then those who are performing. Yeah. What was your first job out of culinary school, your first full-time gig? As soon as I got out of culinary school, I, I moved to the, the barrier. So I, I went to Berkeley first, spent a little time at Chez Panisse, coming out of the kitchens that we were just talking about and the environments. And you get to Chez Panisse and... It is the total opposite. It is caring. It is, I thought I would become soft. I didn't think it was reality. And, and on some levels, it, it isn't. It's a, it's a very special place. So I, I then went to the Lark Creek Inn with Bradley Ogden, which had uh, the right level of dysfunction that I was used to. And I would say that Bradley, in many ways, his dedication to ingredients uh, that were grown right there in Marin. We would go to the market, you know, with a van three days a week. We had a farm. Nothing was saved from shift to shift. Everything was super, super fresh. Um, but we were able to achieve it at a you know at high volumes. I think Bradley probably had more influence over my my cooking than than anyone. The ingredients were just better and more vibrant and fresher. And the dedication to those ingredients in their pure form versus East Coast, which tends to rely more on technique. It's an approach to cooking that I, I carry still today. I mean, Ellis Waters and Chez Panisse have become kind of the, the historical archetype of farm to table, right? That Now she gets the, you know, a lot of credit for that movement, but give us a sense of what it was like to be there and, and in that kind of, in a new school in some ways of now the celebrated way of thinking about cooking. If the uh, the chefs that I worked with on the East Coast were obsessed about technique, Alice and her team were obsessed about finding the best local ingredients from people they were deeply connected to and serving those ingredients in their purest form. You know, famously, Alice served a, a peach <laughs> on a plate for dessert with nothing on it. Because the peach was perfect and and you don't get it in your way. I think Chez Panisse to a magical extreme 
has been dedicated to that you know, long before anybody was talking about it. And the, the misunderstanding also, and this is where I try not to use farm to table as a label, unless you're obsessed, unless you really, really are dedicated to using the best ingredients and almost letting the farmers write the menu for you, right? The farmers or the market decides what the menu is, you don't. And then you just facilitate it. You help it along. And that that dedication is is fairly rare, even though the farm to table movement or identity is is widespread and 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 therefore has be, been diluted. Yeah. Give us that kind of the highlights of your career from there until you you became a, a founder of a different kind of restaurant. What, what was in between those stages? So I was in in the Bay Area for about a decade with two years spent in Hawaii. So after Lark Creek Inn, I went to Aqua with George Marone and, and Michael Mina. Very, very intense kitchen. And then I went to Campton Place, which is where Bradley Ogden started. Um, I was with Todd Humphreys, uh, who had just come from uh, working with Greg Coons at Les Benas, which was probably one of the best restaurants in the world at the time. And that was an interesting journey. I was there for about four years with Todd, and it was a nice journey from you know this reliance on on technique and overcomplicated recipes to an evolution that became far more ingredient centered and the dedication to more obscure you know we were using quinoa before anybody knew how to pronounce quinoa <laughs> so you know years later you know as i got into the importance of agrobiodiversity and lesser known ingredients around the world you know i look back to what we were doing at camp to place and there was a lot of innovation there uh, that was a blend of hyper local and globally underutilized or, or obscure. So what was the moment when you hatched the plan, hatched the idea to to build the Tender Greens brand? So after San Francisco, I, I moved, uh, this is right after 9-11, I moved to Los Angeles uh, to run Shutters on the Beach in Santa Monica. It was there that yeah, I pretty much decided fairly quickly that this was going to be my last stop. I'm done working for others or running other people's businesses. I, I felt I had learned enough, you know, to run a successful business. And LA was such a big market uh, with what I believed had a lot of white space at the time. There was fast food nation, right? This is where fast American fast food was sort of born. And then A-list centric very expensive restaurants that unless you were Tom Cruise, you couldn't, you couldn't get into. But, you know, what I wanted was the kind of food that I was cooking up in San Francisco, you know, in, in a context and a price point and an availability that, that I could get on a ready, regular basis, which led me to just go to the Santa Monica farmer's market or Santa Monica seafood or, or Whole Foods or wherever and cook at home for friends. And, and I believed that most people don't, honestly know how to shop even fewer know what to do it you know if they if they find some good ingredients and even fewer have time so tender greens was a reaction to that that thesis that people are time crunched they have some budgeting constraints and they have a desire to eat 
relatively healthy, not health food, but healthy. And the food should be reflective of, you know, the bounty of what grows in California. And if we could do that at a price point that almost everybody can afford at a pace that, you know, everybody can accommodate their their needs, whether it's to to have a nice rosé and a salad niçoise and, and enjoy a long lunch because it's beautiful out or a quick bite or, or grab so they can go back to the studio, whatever that is, the casualty of of a busy life should not be good food. And we designed the menu around what we knew people wanted. They wanted a really good grilled mid-rare steak. They wanted a crispy skinned chicken. They wanted a beautiful salad uh, that was more than lettuce, but wasn't confused. Um, that could be a meal. I love that phrase, more than lettuce, but not confused. <laughs> right. So it, you know, it was just taking what we knew, whatever city you're in, people wanted, and then doing those classics, sort of California comfort food, better than what was out there at a better price and, and better ingredients. And, you know, we believed after so many years in, in these kitchens, better technique. Yeah. And it talks to the importance of good partners in starting something up. How did you three come together, build together? Talk to us about the partnership. So we all worked together at Shutters. I was the executive chef. Dave was the director of food and beverage. Matt was the chef de cuisine of One Pico, which was sort of our one di- uh, fine dining restaurant. Uh, Matt and David had been at Shutters for a while. They had suffered through the dark days of, of 9-11. I came in sort of post-9-11 when the business was beginning to brush itself off and say, okay, now we have to be forward-looking. And within six months, I had pretty much decided this is not for me anymore. Matt was already at wit's end, and David was sort of navigating, but quietly disgruntled a little bit as well. And Matt and I started kicking around ideas, like what does LA need? What are the next steps? And we started testing ideas. We had this concept called Fishbone, which was really a and we were all from the East Coast uh, originally. And at the time, there was great sushi restaurants, but there weren't a lot of great clean fish restaurants. So we thought we could do like a fish market with just really simple fish. And the more we developed it, the more we overcomplicated it conceptually. There came a point at which I privately said to myself, you know what, if if we can't nail this down by December, I need to think of something else. So December came and, you know, it's funny. I, I just sat there, um, folded a, a piece of paper and, and wrote the tender greens menu. And then like a, a one sheet concept overview and sort of kicked that around, you know, friends and colleagues a little bit and then shared it with Matt. And Matt said, uh, well, can I be part of it? So that was it. And me and Matt started to, to to sort of develop this. We went up to Scarborough Farms to talk to Jeff and Ann Stein about partnering because we really wanted to build everything around what they grew. And that ended up many months later in, as an equity deal. And then later on, um, I was actually doing a, an annual review with, with uh, David. And he was asking me what, what my plans were. And I said, well, Matt and I confidentially are working on this project. 
And two weeks later, he called me up. I was coming out of Gold's Gym in Venice and he called me up. He's like, Eric, you know, when you shared that idea that you and Matt are working on, were you just sharing it or were you inviting me to come along? And the fact is I was just sharing it. But, you know, David rounded us out and and that was it. The three of us decided to bond together. David became very, very helpful. He was the guy who always had the book bag with the legal documents and administratively he's very, very talented. He's also, you know, he had a little bit more access to money than me and Matt did. You know, David and I became close partners on fundraising. Yeah, I think a big part of our success was was the three of us that we um we each knew what our strengths were and we supported the other on that. And we knew what our weaknesses were and you know, we we all held each other accountable. And there was never a rogue moment because anybody who was kicking and screaming that they were not getting their way, you know, the agreement was if you can't convince one of us to come along with you, then you lose and you have to suck it up and and you know, majority rules. And it worked very well. We just made better decisions and we were more accountable to one another than if you're solo or 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 just two. Yeah. I mean, you, as you talk about it, I can see the business case on paper. I can see the business plan. I can see how it makes perfect sense. As we both know, and I think anyone that's ever started a business knows, it's never as easy as it, as it looks on paper. So give us some of the um, fun stories of what it was like. You know, you've got the idea, you've, you're ready to go. You're starting to build, you're starting to get going. How was the build-out process? Was it perfect like the, like the business plan or was there, were there hiccups or <laughs> what was it like to get off the ground? There's a there's a saying around war, you know, you, plans are great until you get into battle and then it's you know, that's it. So it really started with fundraising, convincing people that this was a real business possibility. We had called our corporate identity TYP Restaurant Group, which stood for 10-year plan. And the plan was 30 of these restaurants across the key markets in California with a promise to create a liquidity event at the end of that journey and and that the the business would be grounded in a local organic supply chain and led by chefs by chefs who had our our pedigree essentially and that we would we would try and do good for the neighborhood o- along the journey once we took care of ourselves and then you know it, it created absolute clarity and alignment around what the what the goal was and we never lost sight of that and that's the easy version. And right. the, the hard version was it took two years to raise the the funds. It, we under budgeted what it would cost to build out a restaurant. It took twice as long to build out, twice as expensive to, to finish. And we opened with about $850, I think, in the in the bank account. And fortunately, we had a line down to Sony Studios day one. So we ran out of food by seven o'clock the first night. We had to close. Uh, the next night we made it to close. You know, my partners, David and Matt, would, would always joke about those first few days. I uh, I had set up a station with my Japanese knives. I had a truffle slicer and a microplane for the Raggiano. We had three types of romaine all whole because we didn't we didn't want to cut them ahead so we would cut them to order and we would shave the parmesan to order and make the uh the caesar dressing to order because that's how they did it at zuni cafe and i thought that you know that was the best caesar salad in in the city so um 
that lasted through lunch. <laughs> and <laughs> just the volumes were insane. I think we did, you know, over a thousand covers the first day and it, it was just insane. So learning to to handle that volume in that context, it took a minute. And we had done volume before in, in other restaurants, but doing it right out of the gates was was tough. And uh and we were just learning as we we went. We were, you know, in at six AM and uh out at one AM. And and it was those were heavy days and we went like that for months and months without a, a day off. And you really I mean you guys really did bootstrap the launch. What were the funniest or craziest stories from from bootstrapping? What comes up for me is uh me, Matt and David would trade off closing duties. So it was my night to uh to scrub down the kitchen and I had uh, bent over to pick something up and hit my head on on a sharp piece of stainless steel that was unpolished. So I had this big gash and I'm sweating and I'm wet with muck and and I kind of just worked through that, not even realizing I was bleeding. I went out to bring some mats to David who was scrubbing and hosing down the mats in the in the in the very gross uh, alleyway. And he was completely soaked. <laughs> he looks at me and he says, this is a long way from executive committee. We had all worked at <laughs> Shoto's on the beach and uh, those were catered meetings and uh, it's somewhat civilized. And and there we were yeah. <laughs> just in ankle deep, dirty mat water and everything else. So it was a funny moment where we we were exhausted, maybe a little bit miserable, and just together we were able to laugh it off. And you know, in retrospect, you know, those were the, those were the good days, as hard as hard as they were. And full disclosure, I was a, lived in LA for a long time and was a huge huge fan, and was at least once a week had dinner at the West Hollywood Tender Greens. So <laughs> I loved what you had been building. How did you then come to the decision to move on to your next exciting project? What was that process of transition like? Well, the the promise of TYP was to create a liquidity event. We did that. We did a sizable exit, not everything, but sizable, led by Alliance Consumer Growth and then USHG, which was Danny Meyer. And that was around the time Danny was getting ready to IPO Shake Shack. He hadn't done that yet, but we knew that he was going to come into a little bit of cash. And then because of Danny, frankly, we decided to stay on. So I stayed on for another three years as the CEO. And then it just, it was becoming less and less fun. And also, you know, my life was shifting from, from LA to New York. So with that, I was getting deeper and deeper into regenerative agriculture and agrobiodiversity and the the role and responsibility of the food industry to own their part around climate change and habitat loss. And, you know, to a a similar degree, but I I call it slightly less health and wellness and the epidemic of obesity and and food-related illnesses. And I just felt the depth at which I wanted to go was a little further than Tender Greens was able to tag along and it was right for tender greens to do its thing and and for me to you know grab my back backpack and explore again you know i i underestimated the emotional identity crisis of stepping away from tender greens i still had speaking engagements and other things that i had lined up and it's 
Yeah, it's like wanting to go out on your solo career, and people still want you to play the the hits. Yeah, and <laughs> and, and it's just different. So, yeah, it took me a bit to to transition. I joined my now wife with uh, her creative agency, uh, which is Cohere, and was just getting sort of situated and focused and ready to you know do the next thing. And COVID hit, and COVID for all of us. You know, created a, a world that was uncertain. So I went from always thinking far out to really just living in the moment and saying, okay, we're going to just navigate it in real time. And, and once we come out of this, we'll, you know, we'll figure it out. But for now, we just have to kind of one day at a time live in real time. That's it. Yeah. And it, I mean, it was uncertainty for everyone. I, but I remember those days and thinking acutely about the food and beverage restaurant industry, the service industry. I mean, it was apocalyptic for that entire industry. As someone who'd been in the space forever, who was still very much involved at advising folks in the space and consulting in the space, what was that like? A very, very difficult business became nearly impossible and, and not fun. It was neither rewarding you know, financially or fun emotionally. It was just you know, for those with businesses, it was survival. Like, how do we get through this? Whatever it takes and whatever values you have, they get somewhat shelved and you just need to survive. And then coming out of it, it was post-war. It was, now we have to rebuild, we have to recover, we have to deal with the mental health issues, the emotional issues, the financial issues, the debt issues, the staffing issues. Right. Yeah. And and the world has changed. So customers used to be in this massive uh high rise and now now they're only coming in on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So how do we navigate that? Because we have a footprint that is designed for a, a different world. So it it was very, very hard for, for tender greens. It was very, very hard for just about everybody i think the beneficiaries of it were the the next generation talent so the people who didn't have exposure you know in a business sense meaning maybe they lost their job or whatever but you know they they weren't at risk of losing everything they were able to to innovate and experiment and i think that out of all of this it'll be interesting to see who the next class of of talent is and and how how they express themselves from product innovation to technology and business innovation. You know, I think we're still in very early days, but there are a lot of talented people out there with a lot of energy. And, and I think that's what really motivates me these days. I, I'm more of a, an executive producer. So I've got my hands in, in a lot of projects that are now about to come online. I'm not running the business day to day. I'm sort of the guide on the side, but I, you know, I take equity bits. So I've sort of a fraction of the action in, in a number of really exciting projects. Um, they were incubating, you know, at the tail end of, of COVID and now they're coming online. So I'm excited uh, again and thinking long-term again. When you, you say incubate, is that how you look at Cohere Food Labs? Do you look at it as an incubator? Or how do you think about what your personal focus and passion is is on right now? Yeah, some some of it is uh, is a place to sample 
new things. So people send me products all the time. I'll try them out and provide my feedback. Occasionally, there's something that really jumps out at me and, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do something with, with that founder. And that might be introductions, that might be using the product, that might be joining them as an advisor, whatever. Then there's concept development. So I, I work with uh, quite a few founders on concept development and refinement. I was just in Lisbon working with a group over there. So some of that is is just being the, you know, oftentimes the, the creative support, but also the entrepreneurial support so that we're we're not just doing cool things, but we 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 make money. And then there's there's a lot of the, I guess, far reaching stuff related to to some of these things that matter most, which I bought a farm in Princeton. So we do a lot of testing of, of rare seeds and indigenous um, growing methods. I've become fascinated with the variations on three sisters, which is you grow maize and then pole beans and and squashes and the, the maize creates the pole for the the beans to, to grow up and the squash creates this canopy that suppresses weeds and and uh, also keeps the soil cool and and moist and then carrying that from from growing to recipe development is fun so i guess we have our our hands in a lot of different aspects of the business it's always centered on how do you make money doing good for the neighborhood right how do you make impact and also you know make some money along the way because that way you don't require outside investment or sponsorship or donations or whatever so i i believe that the best test of, of a product is that there's a market for it yeah i mean it's akin to kind of what we talk about a lot here doing good doing well and the alignment of those two things in my experience is deeply intertwined that they're not mutually exclusive in fact i want to actually focus on that kind of the next few minutes and there's so many you know, i've heard you talk about in the past the democratization of food i'm curious kind of if, if you'd give us that definition to you how do, how do you look at that why is that important and in particular why is that kind of concept important as we pull back and think about the things that matter like you talk about growing more sustainably and doing things that are perhaps better for biodiversity and for the earth give us some sense of kind of the the underlying values that guide your approach to all this pragmatism over purity progress over perfection and using that to meet people where they can be and then nudging them a little further so I think the the failure of some groups who, you know, and this might be Dan Barber or Alice Waters or, you know, I, I sit on the board of the Rodale Institute. They're like the gold standard of regenerative agriculture, and they're important. They're really important. So this is not a criticism. But what inspired me to do Tender Greens, honestly, was a 60 Minutes interview with Alice Waters where they were going through, you know, this idyllic world that she has created in Berkeley. And there was one question that was asked, which was, you know, this is all lovely, but not everybody lives in Berkeley, California with this amazing access. So what do you say to them? And it wasn't just about access because of California, but it was also, you know, budget. Not everybody can afford to go to Shape and Needs. And, you know, she gave this answer around sneakers and people, you know, will spend $200 on a pair of sneakers 
why wouldn't they spend on a beautiful apple, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it was called to action for me because I think she was, she missed it. And it was, it was as though, okay, that's my opportunity because yes, I love everything she does. I love everything that Dan Barber does. I am a huge supporter of the Red Ale Institute, but 1% of food production in, in the United States is organic. Even less is regenerative. We are not reaching enough people because whether real or perceived, it's too expensive. And chefs, entrepreneurs, founders of CPG brands, consumers with means all say the same thing. Well, you know, it's, it's expensive or, you know, I can't find it or whatever. So my position on all of this is, yes, we have gold standards and purity, but we need to be open and honest and get everybody moving in, in a direction that's going to create a better outcomes for the planet, for individual health. And some people are going to be able to do it in, in a deeper way than others. But what are we doing about school lunch? What are we doing about what is anybody, I guess, doing? And I, I don't think we collectively or individually are doing enough because it's easier to, to lie or fib or label it as natural or sustainable or farm to table or whatever. And, and those things are meaningless now. And yet people can get credit for it. So I want full transparency in the supply chain and the food system. And I, you know, my ask, you know, if there's a call to action is do what you can and don't stand there frozen feeling like if you can't do it all, then what's the point? Do something. Yeah. And it goes for, Consumers, producers, companies, all of it. Everybody. Do something, and then tomorrow do a little bit more and a little bit more. It's at, it's at 1% rule. Just start with something. And, and I think a lot of people just give up, and we see that in society with fitness or dieting or education. You know, people are overwhelmed because you know they might see the, the pure examples that aren't achievable, so they just they quit. They're like, I can't. I can't do that. Why bother? But 1% a day, you'll get there. Or you'll get, there's nothing wrong with getting better and not getting to perfect. That's right. And and that's what we always tried to do with Tender Greens. And that's what I tried to do with the people I work with. Like, what can we do? And let's prioritize and say, here are the easy buttons, right? Today, we can change this just by having a little bit of conviction. And then we'll we'll work on the tougher stuff and and keep keep going and stay dedicated to better every day. Do you feel like the industry is aware, embracing this kind of call to action within within the food industry itself? Are you seeing more young chefs who are more interested or more curious about addressing some of this stuff? I, I think there's curiosity. I think there's a degree of dedication, but we can do a lot more. Yes, I think we are better today as an industry than we were when I started. There's at least more aware, awareness. And with that awareness, there's some will act. And it's it's like everything in the world. It, it it takes time. But when you look back, you say, wow, you know, we've actually, I, I've come a long way. I've learned a lot more. You know, I, I have far more working knowledge today than I, than I did when I started, which is normal. So I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, but I ask a lot of questions and I, I want to, uh, I hope that everybody takes all of this very seriously and, and ask themselves, what can I do? 
Big thanks to Eric for today's fun conversation. To learn more about his work, check out his website, www.coherestudio.co. That's www.coherestudio.co. We'll see you next week. This episode was produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock, executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker, Greg Hurgle, and Patrick Gallagher. Consensus In Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave us a like or rating. It really helps us out. And if you're interested in telling your story as a guest or just want to stay in the know, connect with me on LinkedIn. Consensus In Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media produced in association with Reasonable Volume. 